Chapter Twelve of Eighteen Months' Imprisonment by Donald Shaw. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve: The Central Criminal Court. After my sudden summons to attend the court, I found myself in the yard below, where, in company with some twenty others, I was placed in rotation according to a list the governor and chief warder were checking. This formula being completed, we proceeded in single file, preceded by an officer, and followed by a patriarch, along the subterraneous passages that connect the prison with the old Bailey courthouse. These passages are the last remnants of the old prison, and demonstrate the change that has taken place in the accepted notions of ensuring the safety of prisoners. Every few yards a massive iron door some inches thick, with huge bolts and a ponderous key, bars the passage. Having passed through all these, we came to a halt in a dark recess, partially lighted by gas, on each side of which were arched cells, suggestive of those of the Adelphi. Into each of these five or six of us were conducted, for by the prison system prisoners before trial may be herded together. After conviction, however, all that ceases, and one is supposed henceforth to be isolated. After a delay of some twenty minutes, and during which I was initiated into the style of society I might expect for the future, my name was called and I was conducted up a wooden stair. The hum of voices, for I could see nothing, indicated to me that I was in the vicinity of the court, and on the stair leading into the dock, one of those mysterious boxes I had often seen from the opposite side, where criminals popped up and popped down so suddenly and so mysteriously. I had seen many murderers sentenced to death from that very dock, and was often puzzled at the geography of the place. All this, however, was now made perfectly clear. It was with mingled feelings of astonishment and bewilderment that I found myself, suddenly and without warning, the observed of all observers. The crowded court, the forest of well-known faces, vindictive prosecutors, reluctant witnesses, quasi-friends come to gloat over my misfortune, and one or two real sympathizers, all appeared glued together to my bewildered gaze. Beyond, and seated against the wall, were innumerable figures robed in flowing scarlet gowns, and presenting to my senses so ghastly and weird a picture that I can compare it to nothing but that impressive trial seen in The Bells, to which Mr. Irving imparts such terrible reality. It only required the mesmerist to complete the resemblance, and it must have been there, although invisible, for I was mesmerized, or at least completely dazed. By degrees, however, I recovered my senses, and embracing the whole scene, summed up the vanity of human sympathy and the value to be attached to friendship, as it is called. Reader, whoever you are, take the word of a man who has been rich and surrounded by every luxury. Friends will cluster round you in your prosperity, as they did round me, and when they have eaten you out of house and home, and robbed you by fair means or foul, by card-playing and racing, you must not be surprised if you discover that the most vindictive and uncompromising are those you least expected. For it was not an enemy that reproached me, then I could have borne it, neither was it he that hated me, that did magnify himself against me. But it was a man, mine equal, my guide, and my acquaintance, yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. The ordeal at length had been gone through, and I was on my return journey to the prison as a convicted prisoner. 
A prisoner, after sentence, consists of only two classes, the convict and the convicted prisoner. And it is marvellous how soon the difference shows itself. The convicted prisoner finds absolutely no change beyond being deprived of the questionable privilege of procuring his own food at an exorbitant rate. With the convict, however, things are very different. Immediately after sentence, he is stripped of all his clothes, his hair and beard are cropped as close as scissors can do it, and he is metamorphosized by the assumption of the coarse brown and black striped convict dress. The change is so marvellous that it is difficult at first to recognize a man. One poor fellow I saw, a gentlemanly-looking man from the post-office that I frequently spoke to, was so changed when I saw him next morning in chapel that I could not for the moment recognize the poor wretch who kept grinning at me with an air of levity as assumed as it was painful. I am not ashamed to admit that I thanked Providence I had escaped that fearful doom. It is not generally known that two years' imprisonment is the limit of a sentence of hard labour, after which the next higher punishment involves five years' penal servitude. There is a vast deal of ignorance displayed on this subject, even by those who might be supposed to know better. It is generally believed that imprisonment with hard labour is a severer punishment than penal servitude. No greater fallacy ever existed. I base my assertion not so much on personal experience, for I was exceptionally fortunate, as on what I saw of the treatment of others and I confidently assert, and my opinion would be corroborated by every respectable prisoner, if such an anomaly can exist, that two years' hard labour is an infinitely lighter punishment than even two years of penal servitude would be, and I can only attribute the general acceptation of this error to the fact that convicts get a little more food than convicted prisoners, and prisoners as a rule will do anything for grub. I have now brought my experiences of Newgate to a close, and shall briefly describe our departure to our final and respective destinations. An unusual bustle one morning indicated that something out of the ordinary was about to happen, and though we received no actual warning, it was generally buzzed about that we were to make a start after breakfast. At breakfast time the warder told me to put my things together, and half an hour later found me and sixteen others marshalled in the corridor, where, being carefully compared with our respective descriptions, we were formally handed over to a detachment of warders from Cold Bath Fields. Other parties were being simultaneously paraded for Holloway and Pentonville, the latter all in convict dress, and as pitiable a looking set as can well be conceived. I discovered, both now and subsequently, that a human being is invariably referred to as if he were a parcel. Thus, on arrival, one is said to be received, and one's departure is described as being sent out. This is not intended in an offensive sense, but may be taken rather as a figure of speech. In the adjoining yard were half a dozen vans. Indeed, I had never before seen such a formidable array, except, perhaps, a meet of the four-in-hand club on a rainy day and into one of these I was politely conducted, with a degree of precaution as unnecessary as it was absurd. No reader can accuse me of rounding the points of this ungarnished story, or endeavouring to conceal any incident, however unpleasant. As, however, my subsequent experiences may discover a treatment so kind and exceptional as to appear almost incredible, I must only ask the reader to credit me with the veracity that my previous frankness entitles me to expect. 
my anxiety on this point is considerably enhanced by the contradiction it will bear to other narratives i have read and which purporting to describe prison life invariably represented as a hotbed of cruelty where prisoners are starved and otherwise ill-treated all of which i emphatically deny and cause me to doubt whether one single specimen of these so-called personal narratives is anything else but an idle tale written with a view of enlisting sympathy and possibly turning an honest penny if these writers and these prisoners had seen as much as i have from outside of prisons on the continent in morocco and in china they would think themselves very fortunate in their present quarters i who have seen prisoners starving in prisons in morocco and absolutely unfed except by the charity of visitors who usually scramble a few shillings worth of bread amongst them and who for a dollar to the jailer have seen a chinaman at shanghai brought out made to kneel down and have his head sliced off like a watermelon have no patience with these well-fed well-clothed and well-housed rascals i would send all these discontented burglars and their converted biographers to china or morocco and omit to supply them with return tickets i have lately read a book connected with penal servitude by an anonymous writer in which this innocent lamb is whining throughout of his hardship in being compelled to herd with criminals and it says a great deal for his imitative capacity that he should so naturally and so thoroughly have adopted the almost universal injured innocence tactics of the habitual criminal one great nuisance at all prisons is the almost universal habit that prisoners have of protesting their innocence they protest it so often to everybody on every possible occasion that they eventually begin to believe that they really are innocent I found these guileless creatures great bores. Indeed, I am, I am convinced, well within the mark when I assert that there were only about three-and-twenty guilty persons besides myself amongst the fifteen hundred prisoners in Coldbath Fields. This compulsory herding with innocent burglars is a great trial, and one that never enters into the calculation of a judge. A short drive at a good pace on this early December morning brought us to the gates of Coldbath Fields Prison, and as I stepped out I could not help recalling Dante's famous line, All hope abandon ye who enter here. It only proves how apt one is to form erroneous ideas from first impressions. I was never more mistaken in my life. End of chapter 12